Welcome to the Building Confidence podcast brought to you by KPMG, where we explore a range of issues which impact on stakeholder confidence in governance, corporate reporting and audit. I'm Phil Smart, client lead partner here at KPMG in the UK, and I'm your host for today. As the events in Ukraine continue to unfold, companies have moved quickly to ensure the safety of their workers, whilst girding themselves for the economic impacts and operational disruption to come. In today's episode, we will be addressing the geopolitical risks arising from the Ukraine crisis, whether that be through reevaluating business interests in Russia, suspending operations in Ukraine, or facing up to the new risks faced by a global economy already struggling with inflation and supply chain disruption. We will also be examining the wider interrelationship between geopolitical risk and ESG issues, and what it means for board and risk committee oversight. What lessons can be learned from the current geopolitical events and could organisations have anticipated any of this? To help unravel these themes and the key issues for boards to address, I'm delighted to welcome our guest speaker today, Derek Leatherdale, Managing Director at GRI Strategies Limited. I'll hand over to Derek to let him introduce himself. Uh, thanks very much indeed, Phil. Um, uh, yes, I'm Derek Leatherdale. I run uh, GRI Strategies Limited. Um, but my background and my uh, experience in, in geopolitical risk really tracks back to setting up HSBC's group geopolitical risk function uh, in 2008 and 9, uh, and then embedding that uh, the work of that function into uh, HSBC's risk management framework and governance processes uh, over, over the course of about half a dozen years. Um, that was followed by a role with uh, or, or leading some of uh, HSBC's global government affairs activity. Um, uh, and I then set up GRI on leaving HSBC and have worked with a number of clients across industry sectors since, trying to help them develop the kinds of frameworks and processes internally that help them navigate uh, increasing levels of geopolitical risk. Uh, before, uh, before the private sector, I had roles in uh, the British government in, in national security and intelligence work. Well, thank you very much, Derek. I'm, I'm really delighted that you're able to join us today for, for what is clearly a very, a very timely discussion. Maybe kicking off with the first question, and I guess it's it's a hugely fluid situation at the moment, but from your perspective, could you really provide us with a, with a high level overview of actually what is happening on the ground? Yeah, by all means. Um, and I think it's probably worth um, saying just initially that, that you know, military analysts could talk about this to a very great level of detail. Um, I don't think that's probably um, needed here because I suspect for those listening to the podcast, even if they had had operations in Ukraine uh, before the invasion, I'm sure their contingency plans and uh, 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 business continuity uh, activity has, has sort of long and, and, and well and truly kicked in. So let me just give a really high level view, if you like, um, uh, and, and sort of leave it at that. And I think it's worth just just giving this because because what goes on on the ground in Ukraine, what's happening in Ukraine, will, I think, be the driver for, uh, if you like, an evolving and adapting international policy response. And it's that international policy response that I think is increasingly driving, if you like, the second and third order business impacts globally, rather than what's actually happening on the ground sort of tactically in Ukraine. But broadly, I think where we are in Ukraine, and, and, and I'm sure this won't come as much of a surprise to your listeners, is that, that, that uh, the Russian advance has essentially stalled. Uh, and if you look at uh, the progress they've made to date, uh, they haven't actually uh, taken a, a huge amount of, of ground. 
some of the major cities in Ukraine remain uh, in, in Ukrainian hands. Uh, and this was, of course, in the context of a, a Russian invasion plan, which uh, clearly anticipated much more rapid advances. I mean, in the military jargon, uh, what they'd say is that, that Russia has lost momentum. Um, and, and momentum is the sort of uh, the prize of, of armoured and manoeuvre military operations. And once you've lost momentum, it's very hard to, uh, to regain it. And if you look at the amount of ground that, that, that Russia sort of actually holds, it's still largely uh, in, in pockets of, of ground uh, in the far east of the country um, uh, and, and the, much of the rest of Ukraine um, uh, remains uh, in Ukrainian hands. Um, in that context, I think probably the real risk here, and, and this is how I think it, it would track to the international policy response, is that Russia is changing its tactics. Uh, so it, having sort of started with a um, uh, what you might describe as a kind of maneuver warfare, a highly mobile uh, uh, and anticipated very quick uh, move uh, towards Kiev, that's clearly not happened. And they are changing tactics now to something that looks far more attritional uh, in military terms. Uh, and that will entail much slower progress and probably higher levels of destruction. And I think the real risk is that, that Russian tactics uh, may then start to become more indiscriminate uh, and that they may start to use uh, uh, methods and tactics that, that in, for instance, increase the number of civilian casualties. And I think that's where, you know, this will, if you like, dock into and, and provide the crossover into what the international community do next. Yeah. And, and in terms of that, that international community uh, policy response, what are you able to tell us in terms of what has happened to date and, and how likely do you think um, uh, the evolving situation on, on the ground will, will, will drive changes in, in that policy response? Uh, so, so I think probably the first point to make here is that the international policy response, uh, I think by any measure, has been far more robust and far more comprehensive uh, than, than many, if you like, um, armchair observers and commentators had expected. Um, and, and there are a couple of sort of very good examples of that. I think it was commonly thought that there would be no way that some European uh, uh, governments would allow any expulsion of Russian entities from the SWIFT uh, uh, financial payments, international payment system. Uh, and clearly, actually, uh, you know, that, that, that expectation turned out not to be correct and a number of fairly major uh, Russian banking entities have been expelled from SWIFT. Uh, but also there are there are other aspects. I mean, the broader sanctions regime has, has I think, been more robust uh, than expected. The uh, German government's decision around Nord Stream 2, I think, was also to some extent um, not anticipated. Um, uh, so, so broadly, I think the international community, and, and by that I also mean countries in other parts of the world, so Singapore and Japan, for instance, you know, have both introduced uh, uh, sanctions um, uh, in a way that perhaps wasn't expected. But broadly, the international community's response so far, uh, at least in respect of financial, economic and entity sanctions, has been, uh, I think, um, far more robust and comprehensive than, than many expected. Um, I should probably say I don't think there's any appetite uh, amongst NATO uh, member states for, if you like, military escalation on their part. Um, uh, I think they also draw some, um, if you like, some encouragement from the fact that the supply of weapons and training to the Ukrainian military has clearly had, I think, a, a greater impact, a degrading impact on Russian 
military progress than 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 even many Western military an analysis uh, analysts anticipated. Um, uh, so I, I think the sort of calculation remains uh, amongst uh, the sort of key players in the international community that that financial, economic, and entity sanctions are, if you like, the main component of a response. But this is where I think the response may evolve uh, if the situation on the ground uh, deteriorates and if, for instance, uh, that we start to see instances of wider civilian casualties, as an example. I think in those circumstances, uh, the kinds of, for instance, energy, oil and gas carve-outs in the existing sanctions would start to be removed, um, uh, probably not wholesale, but incrementally. Uh, that further Russian uh, banking entities, I think, would be uh, excluded from SWIFT. Uh, and some of the sanctions which are heavily focused on Russian state-owned enterprises could also be expanded to other corporate sectors in the Russian economy. Um, and, and I think from a business point of view, then, the, the if you like, the prudent thing to be doing now is to start, if, if you know, listeners' organisations haven't started doing this already, start thinking about what would a, an expanded financial uh, sanctions uh, regime mean for their organizations? And do you think the, the, the community's policy approach is, is, is going to hold? We, we're starting to see a few fracture lines from individual countries who are, are making exceptions. Um, do you think on the whole it's, it's, it's solid? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, <laughs> if we're still in this position in six or 12 months time, um, then, then I would expect perhaps a, a little bit more fragmentation on, on, on the margins. Um, but I think broadly the, uh, the response, as I said, has been more robust and comprehensive, including from some of those, those uh, governments where some resistance uh, uh, was initially expected or anticipated. Um, and even where there have been, if you like, some fractures, um, they, they are, I think, on the margins of what's currently being applied. They, they don't sort of pose a systemic rest, risk to the uh, uh, to the to the broader, uh, if you like, envelope of sanctions being applied. Um, and and if there is an escalation on the ground in Ukraine, um, that, then I think um, it almost certainly any uh, any of that sort of fragmentation or fracturing on the margins would would quickly uh, sort of be overtaken by a hardening of the sanctions regime. And what, what do you see China's role in, in, in all of this? Can, can they be the mediator or are they going to take advantage and, and jump in where, where the Western countries have, have moved out? Uh, it's a really interesting question, Phil, and, and um, sort of political analysts have, have expended a lot of thought and, and indeed written work trying to understand uh, exactly what's going on between, between uh, Xi and Putin, uh, exactly what they may have agreed beforehand, um, uh, I think it's probably no coincidence that the invasion was initiated shortly after the end of the Winter Olympics. Um, uh, uh, but, but I think the broader question here for, for, for China is, as an external observer, but with a, a sort of closer alliance to Russia um, built up over um, the recent past, it's now looking on a situation where uh, the Russian military advance is much, much slower than anticipated, with substantially higher numbers of casualties, where uh, a Western-trained and equipped uh, Ukrainian military has clearly been more effective um, than, than, than probably was, well, it certainly was anticipated by Russia and therefore probably by analysts in Beijing, uh, and where Putin has clearly lost, if you like, the international PR 
uh, war um, this the information war is, is is gone you know swung decisively against uh, Russia and finally where where this sanctions response has I think been much more robust than China uh, would have anticipated uh, it wouldn't surprise me in the least that if for instance Russia uh, is unable to sell as much oil to say European customers uh, that it would seek alternative markets in China uh, but equally, I think from a Chinese perspective, they are looking on a, a, uh, a set of circumstances which would um, give them, uh, if you like, some pause for thought about how uh, they, if you like, how much appetite they have publicly to support Russia. Um, uh, there's a degree of diplomatic nuance, um, you know, to this question as well, you know, the extent. So, so to give you a for instance, you know, when the, when the UN Security Council convened, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, uh, to discuss a resolution condemning Russia. Of course, that resolution wasn't passed because Russia as a P5 member has a veto and duly vetoed. But China didn't veto, China abstained. And you know, that it's there are some, if you like, straws in the wind uh, on this subject that I think uh, make for some, if you like, nuanced conclusions uh, about China's role in this. And I think, as I say, they're looking on at a situation which is not going well for Russia, um, uh, and, and, and therefore would give them pause for thought. We're all clearly experiencing the impacts of this on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Could you tell us a, a little more about, about how this geopolitical event will, will impact the business environment? Uh, yeah, so absolutely. I think probably the first thing to say is when I first joined HSBC and started political risk work, I think political risk was largely viewed as something that applied to a series of relatively fringe emerging markets. It wasn't really something in the developed, uh, sort of amongst developed economies, um, uh, that it was a, a sort of, if you like, a localized set of issues in, in, in um, markets where an international firm like HSBC was investing and operating, but, but wasn't necessarily core or significant to the, to the balance sheet. And I think that sort of logic held for much of the rest of the international corporate sector. And it really tracks back, I think, to this idea that, that so many firms uh, have globalized their market presence, their operational footprints in the years since the end of the Cold War. And I think it, in that period, they essentially did so on the basis that, uh, or on, if you like, the implicit assumption that, that, that globalization had kind of put geopolitics to bed. Um, and that this was no longer an issue that they needed to be uh, sort of concerned by. Um, I think what we've seen, not just with Ukraine, but actually a number of prior events. I mean, I think back to my time in HSBC, uh, you know, providing advice on the Arab Spring, providing advice on the Eurozone debt crisis. It was obvious even then that the direction of travel in the US-China relationship was, was one that would pose you know, uh, sort of increasingly strategic challenges for large corporates operating both in the US and in China and or in a number of sensitive industry sectors um, uh, sort of a, a, a around the world. That geography, if you like, is, is, is a decreasingly important uh, kind of uh, driver of geopolitical risk. Um, and, and in the context of a globalized economy and to bring this to, to Ukraine, what, what we have seen, I think, is a, a range of impacts, some direct, particularly for those firms who've had, who've had operations in Ukraine or in Russia, but increasingly a range of second and third order impacts, particularly through either commodities markets uh, or, or wider um, financial markets. 
particularly through the impacts of oil and gas price rises, uh, particularly through the impacts, for instance, of uh, rising wheat and other agricultural commodity prices, where those impacts are felt sort of second and third order, if you like, by firms in markets many, many hundreds or thousands of miles away. Um, that's quite apart from, from that, that, that sort of slew of, of corporate announcements about firms across many industry sectors either ceasing operations in Russia permanently or, or putting in a, a, a temporary pause to those operations. And I think that when you look at that kind of panorama of impacts, you suddenly realise that actually a geopolitical event in one region of the world, and this, by the way, in a relatively small economy in, in the form of Ukraine and Russia is as it were, only the 11th largest economy of the world, but suddenly you get, if you like, global economic, financial and, and, and corporate impacts that, that cover the waterfront from strategic uh, through to financial risk, through to operational risk. We haven't even talked about cyber and, you know, how, how a geopolitical event can trigger um, uh, cyber risk for firms in, in, in many other countries. Um, uh, as, as well as I think then raising that question, and perhaps we'll touch on this later, of, you know, all of a sudden European governments are starting to recalibrate their, their approach to climate reductions. And, you know, what does that mean for, for corporate ESG agendas as well? So, so I think all told, when you look at the impacts picture, a regional geopolitical event has triggered global corporate consequences that span nearly every aspect of, uh, of corporate activity in one way or another. Um, and that, for me, is is one of the key points from all of this, that when corporates and boards are thinking about geopolitical risk, they need to think I think, in much sort of richer and wider terms about the way geopolitics can transmit impacts into their organisation. Thanks, Derek. And you, you mentioned uh, impacts on, on areas such as wheat prices, Ukraine historically seen as, as the breadbasket of, 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 uh, of Europe. Um, are, there, are there any broader geopolitical considerations that, that, that you, you could share with us? Yeah, I, I mean, probably quite a number. And I think some of this is still emerging. But um, if you speak to people in uh, some countries in the Middle East, for instance, who have very high uh, dependencies on uh, imported wheat uh, and where, for instance, the price of bread and the price of fuel are traditionally thought to be key drivers of political risk and where those prices go up there can be very rapid and quite unpredictable political consequences in certain key markets i mean equally the um i mean i think it's a very interesting set of considerations follow from the fact that the oil price is so elevated um uh, in particular and, and what that means for fiscal stability uh in a number of other um, if you like hydrocarbon uh, exporting uh, states and, and, you know, there are a number of, of countries in that category. Um, so th some of these sort of uh, impacts, they're not immediately obvious. Um, you have to sort of think through how, you know, a rise in bread prices might play out in certain markets where an organisation is operating. I think part of the point for me with this is that if you don't have a structured framework to help you do that in an organisation, um, that, that then it can be more challenging to do it. Doing it informally is very difficult. Mm. And, and in the in clearly hindsight is a is a wonderful thing. But in light of what we do now know, do you think business organisations could have anticipated any any of this? Yes, I think so. I, I, it's, a, it's a really interesting question, um, and, I, and I could sort of cite a number of um, examples. Uh, but probably the first thing to say is that 
intelligence warnings about Russian intentions in Ukraine started emerging in November last year. Um, now, when I've spoken to uh, clients and others, part of the response they uh, give when I when I mention this is to say, well, look, we didn't really think those warnings were serious. Uh, and even if they were, we couldn't really see how this would affect us. And we couldn't see, you know, our expectation was that the, if you like, the international policy response, which is clearly driving so much of the of the sort of corporate impacts, uh, uh, wouldn't be half as robust or as sort of comprehensive as it as it has turned out to be. Um, my, if you like, my uh, constructive challenge back when I when I'm, I'm sort of hear those kinds of messages is to say, how did you go about as an organisation deciding that these warnings weren't serious? What expertise did you apply, um, or, 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 and, and, and um, to what extent did you try and validate your own perceptions uh, of this kind of event uh, and, the, and its likelihood and its impacts? Uh, by, for instance, you know, trying to speak to, uh, uh, if you like, geopolitical experts or, or trying to engage government officials um, on, on these kinds of questions. And nearly always, and this is where I think, you know, what I do sort of perhaps comes into play a bit, nearly always the answer to that question is, no, we didn't really validate it. We just made some assumptions, um, you know, based on the fact that we read the newspaper that morning. Um, uh, and, and, and we couldn't really see how this linked to our organization anyway, so we kind of decided that it wasn't important. I think part of what the modern geopolitical environment demands, particularly for larger international firms, is the ability to say we need some mechanism or apparatus to help us judge these kinds of issues more effectively ideally before they manifest um, uh, uh, rather than uh, rather than um, sort of waiting in, until it's happened. Um, and there's a clear governance dimension um, to that as well, Phil, that, that uh, you know, and how boards can operate to try and ensure that A, they're better informed, but also, you know, they're, as it were, exercising their oversight and challenge of management decision making uh, in, in a more sort of um, effective way on, on this kind of agenda. So, so what do you think this event tells us about global geopolitics and, and, and business? <laughs> what are the lessons learned here? Well, I, I, I mean, as I said, Phil, so, so, you know, when I first started at HSBC, this thing called geopolitics was regarded as a kind of emerging markets thing. I think if I'd spoken to a, a sort of done a straw poll of CEOs um, at that stage, they would have said, look, we really operate in stable countries, you know, so, so um, you know, geopolitics is not something that's an issue for us. I think the evolution in the geopolitical, the global geopolitical landscape in the last decade, really since I think the global financial crisis, uh, is one in which the idea that where you operate is the primary determinant of how a geopolitical event might affect you it is of decreasing value as a proposition. Uh, and that in a globalized economy, uh, impacts from from geopolitical uh, shocks and trends, and there's a there's an important distinction distinction between sort of shocks and trends, but that would require some further unpicking. But 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 both of those things can sort of play out and impact organisations uh, in in ways that are uh, driven by a number of other factors as well as geography, if you like. Um, and and that um, uh, I think what what this instance uh, with Ukraine also tells us is that 
very often uh, those in firms tend to sort of, if you like, silo their understanding of what a geopolitical uh, event or issue may mean for them. So they may think, ah, oh, geopolitics, that's a cyber risk issue. Ah, oh, geopolitics, that's a supply chain issue. Uh, what they may not do, in fact, what they typically haven't done, but I think will increasingly need to do, and this tracks back to the point about a very wide range of corporate impacts, they I think need to sort of view geopolitics as the driver of many different kinds of issues and risks for their corporate performance, you know, ranging from strategy through financial risk, absolutely into operational risk and procurement type questions, cyber, yes, but also increasingly, and, and this is where I think perhaps the the dots haven't been joined as much in respect of their ESG decision making, because there's a really strong link between geopolitical uh, friction, if you like, and antagonism globally, and uh, the ESG agenda, agenda broadly. I, I absolutely agree. And, and you know, what, what do you think are the ESG le lessons that business leaders need to learn from, from this? Well, I mean, in one sense, and in, in very high level terms, um, it's to think that firstly, ESG is not just climate um, uh, and that what we've seen, I think, with with many of the corporate exits from Russia um, uh, since the invasion, that the G of ESG, the governance piece, is sort of um, uh, import, uh, A, more important than I think many had realised in the business community, but that B, good governance um, uh, also requires anticipating, if you like, the impacts of geopolitics in a more structured and formal way. Um, uh, and, and, you know, there, I think, on the governance dimension, there are some really interesting instances of firms who, and, and company boards who've uh, set up structures to help their board think through uh, some of these sorts of geopolitical issues but where it's not clear quite how effectively they're operating. Um, you know, none of the firms who exited uh, or who've announced their exits from Russia announced those exits before the invasion um, or, or indeed sought to wind down their exposures before the invasion short of outright withdrawal. Um, and I think there's a sort of governance, you know, piece and agenda and dimension to this that would be really interesting to to um, unpick in more detail. Uh, then more broadly, I think um, if I could put it like this, uh, when we're thinking about the E and the S of ESG uh, and, and the crossover with geopolitics, I think probably uh, there's been a slightly Panglossian um, uh, approach, generally speaking, to ESG that anything that helps a company achieve its ESG goals, and particularly around climate, is, is by definition good. Uh, but there are some interesting and, and, and sort of rather contradictory elements to this, you know, for instance, um, uh, if you um, uh, if you want to electri electrify a company's vehicle fleet, uh, you would then be drawing on uh, uh, electric vehicle manufacture, which relies very heavily on some very sensitive, geopolitically sensitive raw materials, rare earths and lithium uh, in particular. You know, the, the, the sourcing of those materials uh, has a strong social dimension because many of those are mined in parts of the world with, uh, if you like, um, poorer governance uh, and where the uh, conditions that apply uh, to, the, to the mining of, of those um, uh, key commodities and materials uh, may, may not be uh, up to the standard that, that, that companies would expect. Uh, but also you, materials like rare earths and lithium are hugely sensitive in the US-China 
uh, a geopolitical relationship. And they will become more sensitive as demand for lithium and rare earths grows. Um, you know, and the US is already embarked on a, a, a plan to try and uh, reduce or at least bolster its own access to those kinds of materials in a way that doesn't rely on, on Chinese production. Um, and, and so there are, I say all of that just to, just to sort of um, make it really a key point that when boards are thinking through these kinds of questions, when they're, when they're if you like, interrogating the ESG decision making and planning of their firms uh, and possibly contributing to it, um, there's a sort of hinterland, if you like, of complexity uh, to some of these questions that they may not have been aware of and should perhaps account for in future. And the way to do that is to bring some structure and some expertise, I think, generally speaking, um, uh, to those kinds of uh, decision making processes. Thanks. Um, do, you, do you think there's a broader risk that, that you know, the big issues such as climate change uh, are just generally shunted down the agenda, particularly when we're seeing sanctions putting a real a real squeeze on on the energy markets and, and energy sources from, you know, from from a variety of, of, of locations and, and, and means? Well, I think it's fair to say that a number of governments, particularly in Europe, may be recalibrating elements of their own uh, energy policy um, uh, because of what's happened. Uh, and that may have implications for firms who have, as it were, approached these questions on the assumption that previous policy would continue you know, unchanged. Uh, it, it, very much, I think the impact there would depend on individual firms, their own business models and their own plans. And one of the things in all of this is that geopolitics, that there's no kind of one size fits all answer for the way it, it impacts firms. Uh, individual firms are affected in separate and individual ways. There are some common themes, but but the exact magnitude and nature of impacts tends to vary by firm uh, and their own business model. And I think it's the same here that um, uh, there would be a, um, a sort of variation in corporate impacts from that change in public policy, uh, which is so often a driver. I mean, with a financial sector background, the, the, you know, the big debate over, over um, uh, investment, for instance, and directing investment into renewable energy sources really hinges on expectations about what governments will do. And there's a real neuralgia about, for instance, investing in a renewable technology that doesn't yet have, uh, if you like, public policy support or regulatory backing. Uh, and if that then gets delayed because of what's happened in Ukraine, I mean, maybe those decisions become even more difficult, for, for instance, for for players in the financial sector. Um, uh, 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 more broadly, I think I, I'm sort of hearing two views, if you like, on, on what this means for corporate ESG activity, particularly where it bears on climate. One is companies are saying we need to double down on our, on our particularly our, our, our CO2 reduction uh, ambitions and our renewable energy supplies, because what this all shows is that we're far too reliant, sort of generally speaking, on, on hydrocarbons. And, and ultimately the answer here is more renewables more quickly. Uh, and then I think there's on the other side of the debate, people who say, oh no, hang on, you know, it, and I guess it would depend if you're an energy intensive, you know, manufacturing business, it's a rather different proposition. Um, uh, but who say, hang on, actually, uh, you know, the dash for renewables, if you like, or for greening our energy supply is no longer tenable. And maybe we need to recalculate. Uh, you know, are the, the pace of our ambitions, if not the ultimate direction. So that's how I think uh, those are the sort of two schools of thought I'm hearing. Um, I still think it's early days and I'm sure I'm sure firms are thinking hard about this. Thanks. Uh, 
And more broadly, is there, is there a corporate governance and risk management dimension to, to all of this that, that boards and investors need, need to be considering? Definitely. So, um, and we've touched on elements of it already. I mean, on the investor side, I think investors clearly have, have increased very substantially their, if you like, their interrogation of invested companies on ESG issues um, over the last few years. But typically, I don't think that's included a strong geopolitical component. I sense that may that may be changing, um, and, and certainly in, in in part of my work and where I engage with uh, institutional investors, a part of the conversation with them is often to say, look, many of the companies you've invested in, do you understand what geopolitical risk exposures they may they may be running, uh, and, and how do you know how they approach considering those uh, and whether they mitigate them. And that's a really interesting discussion because I think for many in the investment community, they haven't sort of cottoned on to this, uh, perhaps as much as they should. Um, I, I mean, there are some isolated instances. So um, you will have seen, for instance, um, well, you may, you may remember that um, after the national security law was extended to Hong Kong, a number of institutional investors here in the UK uh, criticised some corporate entities who, who or, or at least made some pointed comments about corporate entities who had supported that. Um, so you, you, you kind of get bits of it in the investor spectrum, but it's not yet approached, I think, in as sort of systematic a way uh, as I think investors will probably want to move towards um, as, as the global geopolitical scene to be becomes progressively more uh, uncertain. And I think ultimately then it's a question of value creation for them or, or value destruction. You know, if they're invested in a company that suddenly loses 15, 20, 25 billion dollars by having to close down operations uh, in one of its markets. You know, from an investor perspective, that ultimately is a, a balance sheet and 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 therefore a, a if you like, um, value of investment concern. Um, more broadly, Phil and I could kind of bore for hours on the on the on the sort of corporate governance piece, but I think some of the key things here are uh, for, for boards in particular, um, where they've absorbed, if you like, political and geopolitical risk information before. I think the usual practice has been to, if you like, to wheel in perhaps a retired political figure or a retired, uh, for instance, foreign ministry, senior foreign ministry official or, or ambassador who, who would give them, I think, sort of typically, you know, half an hour, uh, half an hour's worth of briefing on, on a series of political issues at the end of which the board members would sort of typically say, ah, oh, that's really interesting. Thanks very much. Uh, very nice to see you. See you in three months time. Right. What's next on the agenda? Um, and, and part of the gap there, I mean, you can unpick the, the various, if you like, lacuna in that approach. But part of the gap is that there's no one then saying, OK, what does this mean for us? You know, how do we understand what this big picture sort of political and geopolitical landscape um, uh, that we've just been given an expert briefing on, um, you know, how do we understand how that, that affects what we do? Uh, and I think from a board point of view, one of the, uh, the elements they could look at here to be more effective on this agenda is both to equip themselves with greater expertise, that, that could be something they bring in-house, and, and if you like, and, you know, I mentioned some companies have set up geopolitical uh, committees uh, that was effectively a committee to the board that, that can provide advice on these issues. But equally, that, that could just be a case of more systematic engagement with external experts. Um, but where then they use that to challenge uh, uh, and, and provide oversight to management decision making, 
uh, an element of which is to say, okay, what what does all of this mean for us? And are you, you know, first line management teams, accounting for these issues in your decision making? Um, so there's 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 definitely a component about that. And then uh, and then I think there's probably a piece here around um, uh, better engagement with external stakeholders, and then ensuring that that as geopolitical circumstances change. Uh, and they're changing with increasing, if you like, velocity as well as magnitude, as we've just seen, uh, that the board is making sure that uh, management's response is adjusting accordingly. And, you know, for instance, that could involve the recalibrating of risk appetite. Um, that could involve reconsideration of strategic actions or greater contingency planning. But it's, it's those kinds of things that I think boards can be doing um, uh, to start maneuvering into a more effective approach on this agenda i think they can also be you know questioning whether their management teams and whether in in an fs context or to use fs jargon whether their second line sort of risk functions and other corporate functions have got the right skills and capabilities to understand what's going on globally uh, or across their their operational footprint uh, and 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 then have the processes in place to try and understand uh, how that may impact the organization and what mitigation uh, should then be put in place. Um, so they can be, I think there's definitely a piece there as well around making sure or challenging whether their organizations have got the right capabilities on this. And Phil, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll know as well as I do that, um, you know, typically, for instance, in a risk function, you wouldn't find a geopolitical expert. You probably wouldn't find that there's a team dedicated to leading, if you like, impact analysis, enterprise impact analysis on this agenda. And that's where I think the board and, and, and broad, more broadly corporate governance can play a role by saying we need someone to do that. Uh, they don't have to be a dyed in the wool political analyst, but they need to work across the organisation and they need to have access to the kind of expertise that can inform our decision making. Sorry, Phil, I could, as I say, I could go on for a long time with this, but um, you know, we, we capture some of this in, in, in guidance that I've just um, uh, produced uh, uh, looking at um uh the role a board can play and the role that uh, in particular a, a chief risk officer and a risk function can play to be more effective on this agenda thanks derek well i, th I think we're almost running out of time now but before i let you go and, and i suspect we have covered quite a lot of this in, in in our previous points but what would be your 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 key advice to boards on on how they can enhance the way they consider impacts from from geopolitics uh, so so probably two or three very quick things one get better skill sets um, in a more sustainable and structured way rather than just going for the off board briefing um, because it livens up an otherwise replete board agenda. Two, uh, bring some structure to uh, the approach uh, that they take on this and try and ensure that by using that structure, they have a much more, if you like, systematic way of understanding how these issues could impact their organizations. And then three, I think, challenge their organizations to say, have you got the right capabilities and skills? And are you incorporating these uh, these kinds of considerations and issues into your decision making wherever it's relevant to do so? Um, so those, I think, would be the sort of top three headlines um, uh, with a kind of raft of detail below below all of them. Um, that's that's great, Derek. Um, unfortunately, it's all we've got time for today in in, in today's podcast. We've certainly covered uh, a lot of ground during uh, what is a very sensitive time. Uh, Derek, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. It's, it's been really fascinating uh, to, to hear those from you uh, and, and and to get your take on what is a very important topic. 
some of the key standouts from me that, that I took away today that the, the point around the fact that um, post Cold War, uh, a lot of businesses globalized and thought they'd, they'd effectively killed the impact of geopolitics. But it's, it's very clear from this event that that isn't the case, that there are not just first order, but second and third order impacts, which, which, which are uh, uh, hitting many, many businesses today. Um, and that boards and, and management teams are, have really not necessarily gone through the, the anticipation process, the governance, uh, and brought in the expertise um, uh, in, in the geopolitical arena, which could have given them some of the pointers and allowed them to, to maybe act more proactively uh, ahead of events uh, in, in this case. We've got many more guests in future episodes who are passionate about good governance, and so please do subscribe to our podcast so that you can receive alerts when new episodes are being published. Thank you and goodbye for now.